Hello, welcome to our Lighthouse podcast. We hope that this message brings inspiration and intent to your day. Very good. I love the way that film captures a story like that and draws us in. Uh, is anyone like me where you, when you're looking for a film to watch these days, you're looking for something that's at least a minute 30, not a second longer? Like when you're scrolling Netflix and you're like, oh, that looks good. How long is it? Minute, oh, an hour 58. Yeah, no, that's too long. Next, next. My attention span for films seems to be getting less and less. But I tell you what keeps me in a good film, a, a, a scene or something that happens in a film that makes me want to stay with it and watch the story is a good montage. If you don't know what I'm talking about or if you're under the age of 25, I'm talking about a reel. Uh, but a montage is a fancy French word that old people use to describe something that happens in a movie when a rapid kind of succession of video and images are stitched together to, with a really, really cool song and it lets you know that the, the plot or the story of the movie is taking a turn. It's it, the character, they're going to take hold of their destiny now and they're going to do what they can to, uh, you know, fulfill their destiny. And it's a really cool part in movies. I remember um, I used to do air conditioning quotes to make ends meet back when Elise and I moved back into Australia. Air conditioning quotes. And I remember uh, walking into a family's living room and the Disney film Up was on. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But in this film is the most bittersweet piece of montage you've ever seen in your life. It's the story of a, a married couple's entire life in about four minutes, right up until the wife passes away, set to this beautiful piano music. And uh, we're, we're, you know, doing the, doing the small talk that you do when you're trying to sell an air conditioner to somebody. And then um, this, this piece comes on, and we're both parents, we've both seen it before, and the conversation just stops. And we watch this whole montage <laughs> through together. And at the end of it, we like, eyes are leaking, and we're just like, life is so beautiful. Something so nice about a, you know, a lifelong marriage. It's so fleeting and bittersweet. Just sign here to accept your quote, please. So then every quote I did after that, I um, actually took the film up and said, hey, should we just pop this on while we... <laughs> Banged it. There's a, there's a brilliant montage in a piece of film that I want to show you just now. It's my favourite montage of any film ever. You know it. This is Rocky number one. This lets us know that Rocky's coming up from the bottom, jogging through the streets of industrial Philly. He's got what it takes to beat Apollo Creed. He doesn't have all the fancy gyms and training equipment. His skills are raw. He drinks six eggs every day. He practices boxing on pieces of meat in a butcher's shop. And he sweats. One-arm push-ups, can you believe it? You get the picture. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Silas.
that uh, that piece of uh, film gets me excited. It's the context, right? It's the, it's the situation that he's in. It's not just that. Anytime somebody sets their face towards something, it encourages us, right? And I love that in the story of Jesus, we have a great model for living with resolve, living with our face set towards something. I wonder what that means for you as you, as you think about that question or if I asked you, what is your face set toward? Or maybe I could say it like this, what does your montage tell us about you? If you think about the scenes of your life, if you stitch them together and put them in a montage and you use that epic song, what would it tell us? Where are you headed? What are you determined to do? What prize are your eyes fixed on? I love that Jesus models the kind of life that we could follow, actually, with our face set toward something, set toward a purpose, set toward doing something good, set toward achieving something that helps our families, our neighborhoods, and our cities flourish. Jesus, we see that in his life. But there's a question that pops up for me, is why Jerusalem, of all places? Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And that's an interesting question, one that I think we should figure out for a second, because actually the, the, the epicenter of the world at the time was Rome. So why not Jesus set his face for Rome? Or one of the other cool ancient cities, like Jesus set his face for Egypt, or Jesus set his face for Spain, or Portugal, or Wollongong. I'm sure he would have loved it here. Sunny, harbour city, would have rocked up. Our Darawal brothers and sisters would have been like, Get a mate, how you going? Welcomed him and it would have been a whole lot easier than going to the cross, maybe. But he set his face for Jerusalem. And when you read the Bible, there's something important you have to think about. It's a rule that you have to apply. And it's called the rule of first mention. The rule of first mention. So when you read anything in the Bible, a person, a place, or a thing, it's very important for you to apply the rule of first mention. And what this is, is you have to figure out where that person, place, or thing was first mentioned in the Bible. Because the reason for that is that first mention is the context for the authors when they use that thing. So if they mention uh, Jerusalem, we have to figure out, okay, where's this first mention in the Bible? Because that will help us understand why Jerusalem. So we've got to kind of like rewind through history. This is the first time I've ever moonwalked in church, and I'm not very good at it. But we have to go back in the story to figure out where this place of first mention was. Does anyone want to have a guess? Or maybe you already know? Don't be shy. Australians are always so coy all the time. Sit there with the knowledge in their mind and then just go, no, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'm not going to be the one. I'm not, I'm not going to be the tall poppy. They'll all cut me down. This is a church, people. We're not into cutting tall poppies. We pick them delicately <laughs> with grace. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shortcut it for you. Jerusalem's first mention, not when David takes it, actually. He, he, there was a city on a hill that David thought would be a good place to establish his uh, kingdom when he was the king. 
and that later became known as Jerusalem, wasn't there. It was even further back. In fact, if you've been to the city or the old city of Jerusalem, you'll know that it it almost looks like it did hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And there's a place like toward the center of the city where the it's called the Temple Mount. It's one of the most ancient parts of the city. And there's this incredible stone platform. And upon that stone platform, I'll show you what it used to look like in Jesus' day. That is where Herod's temple was built. Not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, unfortunately, got knocked down by the Babylonians. But this is Herod's temple. It was so massive, he had to build, and so heavy, he had to build this huge stone platform for it to sit on. But according to tradition, inside the temple, right in the very uh, part of they call the Holy of Holies, there's a natural rock that protrudes out of the ground up into the Holy of Holies. And that tip of that rock is called Mount Moriah. Nowadays, if you saw what it looked like in Jerusalem, there's actually a, a, a mosque sitting there, and it's called the Dome of the Rock. And in the center of the Dome of the Rock, apparently, I haven't seen it myself, apparently Mount Moriah still protrudes in there. And it's because this mountain is a very, very special place. According to uh, uh, like rabbi's tradition, it's not mentioned in the Bible, but according to the traditions of, of different rabbi uh, teachers of the Old Testament, Mount Moriah is where God stood when he created the universe. Pretty cool. Um, but actually, there is a story in the Bible about Mount Moriah, and I'd like to read it for you now. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham? Do you reckon it would have been like that? There's an exclamation mark in my one. So I'm thinking God's like, Abraham? It's not like, yo, Abe, what's up? It's Abraham. Abraham's reply, here I am. Now this is a big deal. Here I am is a massive deal. We don't fully get it. We think, oh yeah, he's just letting us know where he is in time and space. It's just like, I'm here. Uh-uh. In the Hebrew language, here I am is this idea of uh, existence. In fact, if we fleshed it out a little bit, actually what Abraham's response is telling us is, Lord, I have been here, I am here right now, and I will always be here when you call for me. That's the idea that comes across with that little phrase. How beautiful is that kind of faith? Imagine if God called your name and your response was, I've always been here, God. I will always be here. I'm here. I'm yours. I love that about Abraham. So God said, take your son, your one and only son, Isaac, who you love, And take him to the land of Moriah. You've heard that before. Come on, Isaac. We're going to Moriah. What? Don't worry about what for. (laughs) So, then God said, go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you on Mount Moriah. You good? So early in the morning, Abraham got up, he loaded his donkey, took with him two servants and his son, Isaac. 
When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. And three days later, three days later, apparently the trip was only about three quarters of a day, but Abraham really dragged the chain on this one. Here I am, God, you want me to go and sacrifice my only son, even though for 99 years I couldn't have one? All right, we're going. Sure? Okay. Hey, we're just going for a walk, okay? Something might happen, but we're just going to take our time, take it real slow, just in case God changes his mind. Three days later, come back to the story. He looked up, saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while myself and the boy go over there. We're going to go worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham knew what God had asked. He was obediently following it, but something in Abraham's mind told him that actually we were going to come back. So he took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son, Isaac. Can you carry this wood, mate? Yep. More, more, good. And he took the fire and the knife and the two of them went together. Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham. And Abraham replied, yes, my son. Notice Abraham's not giving anything away. Can you imagine? Just you and your son in that incredible moment of anguish that must be going on in Abraham's soul, and yet he doesn't give anything away. Because if he did, what would it do for his poor boy? And so selflessly, he's holding on to that like any good dad would. And his son Isaac says, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Listen to this answer. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And you know how the rest of the story goes? They get right to that moment with the knife and everything and it's all set. God intervenes and says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your one and only son. Abraham, in the midst of his obedience, still has the faith to see the character of God. He obediently follows God through with what he's asked him to do, and yet has these eyes that see something in the story that we can't, that, that, that there's something about God's character that isn't actually going to make him do this. And we read that story and we go, that's nuts, right? Who would kill their firstborn son? It's insane. But in Abraham's time, it was fairly commonplace. Child sacrifice was something that people practiced in their pagan religions in order to increase fertility for their people and their culture. It was commonplace. And so God draws Abraham into this story, something he is familiar with. When God called him to this, Abraham would have been like, okay, I've given up my you know, my inheritance, I've moved away from my land, and this is like the final test, and I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm starting a new religion here, and we're going to do the same things that everybody else does. And so God takes him to this place, 
And right when it's about to be the same as everyone else, taking Abraham through a familiar story, he teaches him something that he couldn't possibly imagine. That God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And so, of course, they look over and there's a ram with its horns stuck in a thicket and they can sacrifice that instead. Not the you anymore, it's a ram, it's changed. Well, that's awkward. Thank you, Isaac. Give Isaac a hand for me. You got away with it this time. So when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, this is the story that everyone's thinking about, that God himself will provide a sacrifice. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. Jesus is going to finish what was begun at Mount Moriah. Jesus is going to finish what God started all those years ago. How refreshing to know that our God, our Jesus, is the kind of person and the kind of God that finishes what he started. In, in our world, that's just, just consumed with efficiency and speed and productivity and fastness. Jesus finishes what he started. What an incredible message to us, that we have somebody we can follow who models faithfulness for us, that shows us what it looks like to see the story through with resolve. This place became really, really important. And I think God uses places to teach us stuff, right? Like if I think about all of my, any memory that comes to my mind, I can remember the place that I was in. Like when I married Elise, I closed my eyes. There I am, rhododendron gardens here in the beautiful uh, Illawarra. I can see the, the pond and the pergola and the beautiful little shady spot where we had the service and there's pink petals on the ground, right? I can remember the place. God uses places to help us mem- um, remember things. But, you know, in actual fact, there's this paradox, there's this irony to it because the place, Mount Moriah, even though it became Jerusalem and this cultural epicenter of the world at the time, it wasn't necessarily the place God was interested in. There was more to it. In fact, we see Abraham lived in tents his whole life. He left his place. I want to read from Hebrews 11, which reminds us the place that God is actually interested in. It says this in Hebrews 11:8, By faith, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, Abraham obeyed God and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. And by faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. But he lived in tents, as did his sons, Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs to the same promise. Here's why. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. Not an earthly pace of geography, but something far more amazing than that. Something far more reaching. Something that could only exist within Abraham's heart. Later in verse 16, in some translations, it says, Abraham saw God's city in his heart. The place that God wants to build his city. The place that God wants to live in and through. Isn't the Mount Moriah or the temple at Jerusalem, or lighthouse at Wollongong. It's your heart. 
that's where God, the creator of the universe, wants to live and reside. But it can, that's cool. That sounds nice and emotive. But what does that even mean? God wants to live in my heart. Well, fortunately, the person who this entire story is all about gives us a really good key for that. He says, if anyone's going to come after me, this is the words of Jesus, if anyone's going to come after me, they have to deny their self, take up their cross, and follow me. I think those are the one, two, and three of how God makes your heart his place. And for a long time, whenever I read those three things, I was always like, man, it sounds really hard. It sounds really difficult. It sounds like it's going to hurt me a lot to do those things. And, and it might. But as I thought about it more, I was like, no, there's, there's this everyday experience to denying myself. You know, every time you wake up, sit on the corner of your bed, start your day by saying, God, my life is not my own, but I believe it's yours. And I believe that you've got important things for me to do. And I'm going to try and follow those. And I want to live my life so that it benefits others. You're denying yourself, just like Jesus asked you to. Every time you do that, God makes your heart his place. And then Jesus says, you've got to carry your cross, you know. But I don't have to carry the cross. That's not my mission. That's not my unique purpose. Jesus already did that. There's no way me going and dying on a cross is going to help anyone. Jesus already finished that work. My cross is my unique purpose and calling that God has given to me. And all he's asking me to do is be obedient to that, to follow that through, to figure out, God, what is it you want me to do with this life you've given me? Okay, I'm going I'm to carry that as best I can. I'm going to put all my energy and thought and intelligence and and ideas into how I can carry that for you and fulfill that part of kingdom. Every time you live your life like that, each day you live like that, God makes your heart his place. And then finally, it says, follow me. I think what Jesus is getting at, he's, he's saying, imitate me, mimic me. When you do that, when you get up and you pray to God and say, God, this life isn't my own, but I'm going to carry what you've given me to do in this life. I want to do it the same way, with the same character, with the same personality that Jesus did. God makes your heart His place. So I want to encourage you as we remember, we reflect on what Jesus did, what He accomplished, what He finished, the story that He saw through from start to finish continues today in your heart as you live your life bigger than yourself, as you press on and, and, and strive and set your face to carrying the thing God's given you to carry and do it the same way that Jesus would with the same characteristics that he has and God turns your life montage and your heart into his place one of the best ways we remember this is when we take communion together and, and that would have been provided to you by the hosts this morning and we're going to do that in this moment here together now. If you haven't, just give some hosts a little wave and they'll bring some down to you. <clears throat> and when we do this, what these emblems represent actually on, on the night before Jesus was, or the night Jesus was arrested, he was having the Passover dinner. The Passover dinner is a special feast and celebration for the Jewish people where the things that they eat, the things that are on the table, they all have this special symbolism attached to them. They all mean something important. 
And so at that dinner where they're doing that and they're, they're going through the symbols and remembering how God delivered uh, the Israelites from Egypt and all of that, Jesus starts a new agreement, a new promise with some new symbols. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And the disciples would have been like, what? That hasn't happened yet. But they got it a few days later. Then he takes the wine and says, this is like my blood spilt for you. An agreement of a new relationship, a right relationship, a relationship with God that brings you life and allows God to live in and through your heart. And that's what we remember every time we take this. So my good buddy Chris is going to play this beautiful song for us. And I want you to sit with those emblems, sit with those symbols. And as you eat the bread and drink the wine, remember reflect on this question will your life's montage reveal that your heart is the place that God wants to live will your story tell us something about God making his place here on earth as it is in heaven thank you for listening Please connect with us at a different light.com.au or join us at one of our Sunday gatherings.